0: Whenever we see our risk aversion greater than the patient's risk aversion, there's a misalignment of incentives. If you could ever really explain the medicine to them and say, would you rather go home and risk having an arrhythmia and dropping dead, or would you rather spend the night in the hospital? A lot of people would say, yeah, I don't think the risk is that great and I hate being in the hospital, I wanna go home. That is the
1: voice of today's guest, attorney and physician, Mark Brown, and you are listening to The Stimulus Podcast. Hello, my friends. How you doing? I'm Rob Orman, your host on the show that breaks down ideas, strategies, tactics, habits, mindsets, and gives you the intel to live and work with intent. Don't just suck it up. Think differently. And before we get to the matter at hand, the meat and potatoes of today's show, I want to talk about Awake and Aware, our live in-person event, May 1st through 3rd, 2024 in Bend, Oregon. Several of you have already signed up. Oh yeah, look forward to seeing you. And if you are thinking about it, let me tell you something that went into our planning. Now, this may sway you one way or the other. You might think, okay, I heard that, not for me. Or you might think, yes, that's what I was waiting for, sign me up. Either way, I want you to know what's coming. When we were planning this, this course to unplug, dig in, and really take time to work through skills of self-mastery, stress management, our crew thought a lot about, and we talked a lot about the size of the event, how many people to attend. Now, the venue or the retreat center, I guess you could call it, where we're hosting it's it fairly sizable. And we thought, you know what, let's, let's not pack it. Let's keep it small so this can really be a conversation. Because one of the things that we learned from the last Awaken Aware was that, yes, the scheduled sessions could have incredible impact, but equally so is that interstitial time, talking with each other, attendees speaking with instructors, attendees meeting each other, and all of us hanging out after the official events of the day. And at the end of the year, we all kind of knew each other. And that was definitely something that we wanted to have as a foundation for awake and Aware moving forward. You've been to a lot of conferences. We know some of them are amazing. But for the most part, you sit down and listen to the thing, whatever it is that's on stage, and then you leave the room and then you go about your business. That's not this. This is fully engaged. We are right there with each other. It is designed to maximize that irreplaceable element of what happens when we are together in person. There's a link in the show notes to the Awake and Aware landing page. You can learn more about it. If you have any questions, feel free to reach out. You can do that on the Awake and Aware page. You can do that through my website. There is an early bird discount, which expires at the end of January, 2024. You can also find that in the show notes for this episode. Awake and Aware, May 1st through 3rd, 2024, Bend, Oregon. You have never experienced anything like it. And if you have, I want to know where that was because I want to go. Hope to see you there. The boogeyman of medical practice, at least one of them, is the specter of being sued. And there's certainly a spectrum of apprehension about it. For some, it impacts them very little. Others, quite a bit. But for most, there's at least a glimmer of it lurking in the corner of the mind. And in many ways, it's just kind of this black box of ugh, so let me tell you a little bit about our guest, Mark Brown, MD. JD. I'd heard about Mark for years before this show, for his expertise and deep thinking in the realm of Med Mal and just how to think about it, how to frame it. And when I finally got the chance to meet him and record this podcast, <laughs> mark is a physician and an attorney he graduated harvard law in 1970 dartmouth medical school 1982 yes he was a lawyer for over a decade before he had an epiphany and embraced the healing arts he has worked in the la district attorney's office he has been a criminal defense attorney he has been a professor of evidence and trial practice and is deeply invested in guiding physicians through the seeming insanity that happens when a clinician is injected into the legal system. And we're going to look under the hood today at what MedMal is all about and how he, having been on both sides of this, thinks about it and wants you to think about it. And I'll say this, in many conversations with medical legal experts over the years, I've learned that much of this field hinges on opinion rather than clear-cut answers. This is so different than a randomized controlled trial with A hopefully evidence-based and empirically derived outcome. The legal field is filled with randomness and style and nuance. You could ask two experts and receive vastly different perspectives. And, you know, we know this also happens in medicine, but I think not to the degree of law. And it's important to recognize that today's discussion represents a viewpoint, not the definitive one, because I don't think there is a definitive one. However, The wisdom you're about to hear comes from years of experience, tough lessons, advising and counseling seemingly countless doctors over the years through the med process. Let's get to it. Do you think that
0: clinicians worry too much about medical malpractice? Absolutely. And they respond in ways that's neither good for them nor the patient's. Or the healthcare system as a whole. Let's get into that. And
1: I was thinking the other day, thinking about the difference between law and medicine and why it's so jarring when clinicians enter a legal situation. It's so foreign from the forces that guide medical care. Now, what I mean by that is that medicine and the functions of the human body accord to the laws of nature. If you see a patient in Los Angeles or Bangkok with an arm fracture or chest pain, what's going on with them is pretty much going to be the same. What you do in your approach, at least cognitively, is going to be very similar because there's a commonality to how bodies function, laws of nature. But legal code is, uh, it's like this complete fabrication of government and the human mind. The law seems unpredictable, seems capricious. It's just, it's. Ding.
0: I think that people generally view the law as this relatively capricious and uncertain and that it, it worries them. And sometimes doctors want to go to the law school so that they can learn the law. And then if they know the law, they'll know what to do. But the reason that it's unpredictable and often unfair is that it, it isn't about facts. It's about persuasion. You used the word a minute ago. That's exactly what it's about. So in the law, nobody really cares what happened. What they care is what can be made to seem to have happened, what can be made to appear to have happened, right? So lawyers are about persuasion. Doctors have to know what's going on in order to be able to treat a patient. Lawyers have to know what they can make it appear went on, right? And so I think that's why people feel that sense of capriciousness about it, because they aren't rules like we'd like to think about them. They're guidelines, at least in court, they're bargaining chips. The standard of care is what a doctor in similar circumstances with similar training would have done. Now, talk about an elastic rule. So that can be argued as long as you want. When you think about what happens in a lawsuit, something happened, then Two lawyers come in and each present an entirely different view of what happened. One of them comes in and and argues for extensively that A happened. The other one comes in and argued that B happened. And then we take these 12 (laughs) highly untrained people and say, okay, you guys figured out. I, I think your instinct is exactly right. I think we find the legal system bothersome because it doesn't really deal in rules or facts. It de- it deals in persuasion. And I think once we realize that, it makes it less threatening. Yeah, that's what they do. They, they're going to argue their side. It seems to me that one of the reasons that we are very apprehensive about the medical malpractice process is that once you're tagged, you're suddenly dragged into this labyrinthine, archaic system from the 16th century with rules that you can't possibly understand because they, as you said before, they change uh, frequently and they change jurisdiction to jurisdiction. They change through time and they change by how a person might lobby them or persuade you about them. In order to get money from a doctor, the plaintiff lawyer has to prove that You're an idiot. This fabulous doctor committed malpractice. That's never going to happen. This idiot was right in front of his eyes. He clearly should have seen what happened, but he's under-trained. He's greedy. He's stupid. He's incompetent. He's callow. You have to prove that the doctor is an idiot in order to get money from him. So there's all this energy to prove that you, to make you look bad. That doesn't feel good. It's embarrassing. The lawyers are condescending to you. So I think that that whole part of it Scares people. There's definitely the National Practitioner Data Bank. Does that have teeth? So the answer to that's probably no. Have you ever heard of somebody who applied for a job and they said, "Well, you know, you're really a good doctor, and we'd like to take you, but you're in the national data bank, right?" Nobody has ever said that or does that. So I think it's real, but we fear it much greater than is reasonable. It's interesting that you say that because I can
1: remember being in meet in hiring meetings. And look and looking through candidates and the data and queries of the data bank were brought up. Most of the cases that, that were looked at was there, but for the grace of God, go, I, yeah, I, I could see that or there was an explanation for it. And that was the only time I ever saw that come up. Now, obviously, when you reapply for your medical licensure or hospital privileges, you need to discuss when you've been involved in a suit or any kind of legal matter. And that's so you just make a document of that and you just reproduce it every time you, you apply. But yeah, there's definitely the fear of the scarlet letter of having been sued and especially having had a judgment against you.
0: In California, they've got the uh, medical board newsletter that comes out once a quarter. And I think everybody goes to the newsletter and they look through it to see who's gotten a reprimand or a license suspension or something like that. See if they know anybody. Now, again so silly, but nonetheless, it reflects something about our consciousness about being held up as not good. And to be at the end of training and become a doctor, you've been one of those people that wanted to get an A on your test since third grade. These are people who really like to, be, to get good grades and do well. So they don't take well to getting named as an incompetent or somebody that did something wrong and was identified by the government or by the medical system. As having done something wrong. So everybody fears it and everybody finds it unpleasant. Let me actually, let me ask you one follow up question. But is there the possibility of sanctions from the medical board based on the result of a lawsuit? Not based on the result, but if you did something that was wrong or stupid or the best radiologist in all the land at some point is going to not see something right in front of them on an x-ray. It has to happen. It's human nature. Something bad happens and there are consequences to that. The fact that there's a judgment isn't going to make the medical board take an action, but the underlying action can certainly be reviewed by the medical board to see if it deserves their review and reprimand. Does that make sense?
1: It it does actually makes me think of something that you said earlier about who is the decider in these situations. And one thing that always concerned me about medical malpractice was who was going to make that decision. And if there's an error and there were 12 clinicians or physicians deciding whether or not I had committed malpractice, and I think it would have to be physicians within my specialty. Absolutely. I would frankly be totally fine with that because they would under, as you said, mistakes happen. Most of the mistakes nobody knows about are almost all of them, but mistakes happen. And those people will understand the nuance of what went into that mistake happening. They have deep roots of education and a jury of lay people to decide what, what that is only going to be based on. So as you were saying before, which side the plaintiff or the defense is more persuasive or which expert witness can be discredited the most does not feel like a logical system. Is there any other country in the world that uses a jury of lay public to decide medical malpractice cases?
0: So if you take all of the countries that use juries to decide medical malpractice issues. Okay. Oh, that's right. There aren't any. Oh, my God. Well, the US is the only one. The only country in the world that uses the jury system to make decisions about medical malpractice. To jump back one second to why people fear being sued, an additional element, which again rarely happens, but nonetheless is in the back of people's minds when they worry about being sued, is that let's suppose you have a million dollars in insurance and it goes to a jury trial and they award $30 million. Right. Above your policy limits. Above your policy limits. What do you think? Now, do they get your house? Now, I think that's a theoretical risk, an, an extraordinarily rare occurrence, but nonetheless makes people feel I don't want to get caught up in this system. I can't control the outcome. And, it, and the outcome could be c- catastrophic. Aside from the fact that people worry about getting sued, let's look a little bit at just for a second at the reality of that. Doctors, ER doctors get sued about once every roughly 20,000 visits in your career. Let's suppose you had a hundred thousand, you saw a hundred thousand patients in your career, maybe 120. It's going to be in that ballpark. So you might get sued four or five times in your lifetime. 60% of those are dropped. What they do is they sue everybody that could possibly have touched the patient and they begin to sort out who's really responsible or who has the best target who is the best target. And they start dropping off the other people. Now you've got a much smaller group of people that are even to get into the position of negotiating. Maybe there's a deposition. Maybe they have to do a little bit of evidence comes forward and then they either drop it or they settle it. So to, to go to jury trial, about one in five emergency physicians will ever see the inside of a jury trial, will ever go to a jury trial. One in five in your lifetime. of those are won by the doctors. So your chance of losing to a jury trial in your lifetime are one in 25. Now, to put that in a little bit better perspective, for every three patients you see, the chance of any one of those three patients beating you in a jury trial is the same as being hit by lightning. This is extraordinarily rare. This is why I think we worry way too much about medical malpractice. It's just it's a problem looking for a reality. The likelihood
1: of it going to court is low. The likelihood of a verdict against you is low,
0: but the whole process of it, that's the damage. That's the damage to you. 100% agree. That's the, the Getting involved in this system can be very unpleasant. And I want to talk a little bit about that because there are ways to make it less unpleasant. You pointed out, which I think is a very good point to make, if you want to feel bad about the the time they tagged you for a mistake or at least a bad outcome, and they wanted to say that it was a medical malpractice. And in fact, most bad outcomes aren't medical malpractice. The medical malpractice lawsuits in the United States are off the charts compared to any other country. And there are three reasons for that. One of them is that we're the only country in the world with a jury system. So is your point that you made earlier, a jury of your peers, if you're going to, you're a, a jury trial about whether or not to give TPA. It's a complicated problem, right? There's still a lot of dispute in our field about when do you give TPA and what to do. And then you have an expert come in and these things are written up,
1: says, oh, I give TPA to every patient who's got a stroke. I give it five times a day.
0: You're exactly right. So there's no way that, so as the jury becomes less capable of understanding the subtleties of the facts, they rely more and more on persuasion. And that's why it falls back to the eloquence of the attorneys and the eloquence of experts. And you you know, and I know, you can buy a doc to say anything you need him to say. So th- th- there's no shortage of experts on either side of a lawsuit. And then it becomes who's the most persuasive. And it's, of course, it's going to have some element of capricious outcome, which makes people afraid of it. If a judge makes a decision, what they do is they make a decision and they write their decision. They give you the reasoning, the facts that they considered, and how they came to their legal conclusion. The jury's deliberations are completely secret. That element of uncertainty, even though it's extremely rare, leaves people nervous about getting caught up in that system. A second element, we're also the only country that doesn't have the English rule. The English rule in lay language is loser pays. So if I sue you and I was you didn't do anything wrong, but you had to defend yourself. Everywhere else in the world, I have to pay your costs of defending yourself. Only in the United States do I sue you. You pay your costs of defending yourself. And if I'm wrong, I walk away. What that does is it lowers the price of bringing a lawsuit and therefore lowers the bar of how sure you have to be about whether a lawsuit is a good lawsuit or not. So you increase the level of frivolous lawsuits by not having the English rule. And I would imagine that
1: the American Trial Lawyers Association lobbies heavily to make sure
0: that exactly what you're saying stays in place. Absolutely, the third thing that we do that no other country does is the contingency award. Lawyers take it depends. Let's say a third to forty percent of the judgment. It doesn't happen anywhere else. In all, most contingency fees are barred in others in other countries. The ones that allow some form of it. They have very limited caps. For example, Korea, you can get a percentage of the award, but only up to 10%. There are other places that if you took the reasonable cost of your fees of defending yourself, they might give you up to 100% doubling of those fees, but nothing related or based on the outcome of the verdict. So that's where the gold mine is, right? So I can do five cases, lose four of them, and win one, and it's such a big payoff that the other four are covered those three things, jury trials, lack of the English rule, and contingency fees, are the structure in the United States that make medical malpractice so popular. I want to talk about this little
1: nuanced thing about settling a case. And I know of not a small number of physicians who take the position that if they are sued, even if they are 100% not at fault, 100%. So, like care was impeccable. They say, just settle. I pay malpractice insurance. It's what I'm paying for. And I don't want to go through the stress and distraction of a lawsuit. Just settle. Now, I know some malpractice companies who then drop that group because every case gets settle. But what do you think about that approach?
0: I think that's a great question. And I think it has a complicated answer. If you are too quick to settle, then your premiums are going to go up or you're going to get dropped you need to at least collaborate with your carrier about when to settle. Usually though, I think what we find is that the carriers are more anxious to settle than the doctors because they're going to pay all of your defense costs. They're going to pay for all these depositions. They want to get out quick and dirty, even though it's a smudge on your reputation and and your sense of well-being. So generally speaking, I think the doctors are more interested in fighting a case they feel is unjustified than the carriers, particularly in the case where a doctor feels that it's unjustified. They want some vindication. They want to fight and show that they didn't do anything wrong. The insurance company doesn't want to pay for you to fight and show nothing went wrong when they can get out cheaply without all the co- paying all the costs of defending you. And one of the things, if you want to defend yourself in a medical malpractice case, you have to do is educate the carrier, why it's important to continue fighting.
1: What do you think personally about that practice about, hey, you know what? I don't want to go through the pain in the butt. Just settle it and let me go about my business. And I don't want to be up late and night thinking about this. I want this out of, out of my mind,
0: go on with my life. A fair question. And, and in fact, that was the question you asked before. And I, I artfully dodged it by talking <laughs> about how the carriers are really the ones that want to settle. <laughs>
1: a future in politics with a good evasive answer. <laughs>
0: First of all, it has to be a collaboration between you and the carrier. I think if you want to settle out of a case that they think is defensible, which is usually not the case, they're going to be mad about that. I, I think it's always a struggle in situations where you feel you did a good job as a doctor and somebody wants you to pay them money, and often a lot of money, for having done a good job and taking care of them. It really rubs people the wrong way. They don't want to do it. Could somebody get to that state of mind where they say, What the hell? Give them the money. I've already, it's prepaid. I like that your comment about we already have insurance. So all of these <laughs> costs are prepaid. That's why I have insurance. Let's move on. I don't know how to answer that in a general way other than to say you're going to have to look at your own appetite for litigation. You just said something there that
1: made me think about the few times that I've been on the stand. And it it, it wasn't that I was being sued, but I had cared for a patient and I was called in as a witness to what had happened if it was an assault case. And you get these forms, for those of you not in the emergency department, we get a form called a, it's a serious bodily injury form. And as soon as you check that there was serious bodily injury, then I I believe it becomes a felony or I'm not sure if that's you or the DA, but all I know is that when you fill out that form, you are essentially writing your own ticket to to go to court. Now, usually the cases get dropped, but in the cases when I've been in court and the care, I'd look back, it's like, oh, the care was exactly what I would do. But at the end of that, I thought, man, I must be the worst doctor in the world with how that defense attorney just deconstructed my care and wait, why are they attacking me? I'm just trying to describe what, what, what went down but I don't know. It was. It's like it's such a what would be the word? It's such a degrading, degrading experience. I, exactly right. Here I am. Here, here's somebody comes in. This is beyond the the scope of lawsuits. But just thinking about being in court, I can think about somebody who was hit over the head with a bat, and they had a concussion. They had the big laceration on their head, and it, they maybe they had a broken arm. They were really beat up and drunk and Belligerent. I spent the whole night taking care of this person, and then but they were sober, and and off they went. And it was like that's what is done as a physician with your patients. You take care of them, and it, it can, granted it's not pleasant when you got somebody trying to get out of bed in a cervical collar and walk around and yelling at people and vomiting on the floor. It's just not good. And then you go to court, and it's, whoa. Boy, you said these things and you are the worst. And why did you do this? Why didn't you call in a plastic surgeon to suture this guy's scalp laceration? Because clearly you put in, he's got serious bodily injury because he's going to have this big scar. Maybe you're just not very good at suturing. And why didn't you consult this? It just goes on and on. I think, man, F you, man. It's credit. It's not personal. They're just trying to position their chest pieces to get to checkmate. But when you're one of those pieces and you don't have control over the process, it sucks.
0: Yeah. It's a, it's, and it's purposely their job is to make you look bad. Now, these are criminal cases. Let's go to the case where the person's injured in a car accident and now it's a civil lawsuit. So the plaintiff is suing the other driver's insurance company and you're supposed to come in and testify. Now that you're going to run into the same problem with your care, the uh, plaintiff is going to make, want to make the injury sound real bad and the defense is going to make the injury sound not so bad. But here's a, this is a completely off the subject of malpractice, but something that I want to alert emergency physicians to. If you're called in a civil case to testify as a witness to the injuries of the person that's involved in this civil suit, you should be charging expert fees. What'll happen is the, whoever calls you will say, yeah, you got to come in and testify. You're a percipient witness and your witness fees are $78 an hour. I don't know if you've run into that, but you're an expert when you're testifying, even though you're a witness, just a witness, a precipitate witness, you're also an expert. So don't let the attorneys get away with that. Charge them real fees to make it worth your time. going to break in for a moment to let you
1: know about some of our free resources at roborman.com. These were created to address very specific stress points in medical practice. Scripting your least favorite conversations. You know, why reinvent the wheel every time you have one of your least favorite conversations? Have a framework that works and doesn't deplete you. For charting, there are my favorite documentation templates and the classic in its fourth edition, the quick and dirty guide to calling consults. I know many of you have already availed yourself to one or all of these, and if you have yet to, you can click on the freebies link on the website menu and you will be rocking. Or if not rocking, you will at least be on the page where you can get the goods, which is, that's kind of rocking. Back to the show. Let's get into cost. And we're talking about the, the specter of medical malpractice and why it's so different in the United States than it is elsewhere. And there has to be a systems cost of this, right? We're, and we're going to get back into the personal cost because that's you know really I think what we want to focus on. But from a systems and a, and a national cost, this can't be cheap.
0: Whenever we see our risk aversion greater than the patient's risk aversion, there's a misalignment of incentives. It's almost always true. Our worry, our risk aversion is greater than theirs. If you could ever really explain the medicine to them and say, "Would you rather go home and risk having an an arrhythmia and dropping dead, or would you rather spend the night in the hospital?" A lot of people would say, "Yeah, I don't think the risk is that great, and I hate being in the hospital. I want to go home." It's surprising, and
1: we're our our risk tolerance is usually quite different, and we're often worried about different things, right? We're worried, oh, you're going to have this arrhythmia, and I can remember. One guy I wanted to admit because he um, he literally was having a heart attack. He said, "Man, I've got I got a guy coming to buy my truck. I haven't gotten a lot of responses on Craigslist about this." And his wife's, "You, you got to be out of your mind." He said, "Nope, I'm leaving. I'll come back. I'll come back after I sell the truck."
0: If our risk aversion was simply based on the patient's safety, and the patient knew the story, our risk aversion would be the same. So the fact that our risk aversion is a little greater makes me suspect that there's also some risk aversion to getting caught up in the malpractice process. And what's happening, if that's true, is that our fear of being caught up in malpractice is being taken out, if you will, on the patient. It's unfair to shift our fear of risk to the patient's um, treatment and behavior. And that almost overwhelmingly is we're talking about admissions. One of the things that always amuses me is when you talk about bad doctors, I don't think there are a lot of bad doctors. I think they're rude doctors, but I don't think there are a lot of incompetent doctors. But for some reason, all the bad doctors went into OBGYN and neurosurgery. Who, who knew? In other words, because their outcomes are so potentially catastrophic, they tend to get sued a lot more, which brings us to the, to a subject about money. Damage, the size of the damage always drives the lawsuit, right? So we could have two, let's take 2K, two doctors. One doctor is rude, incompetent, poorly trained. And he somebody comes in and there's an obvious fracture on the x-ray that any radi, x-ray tech would have picked up. And he says, there's nothing wrong with you. You're wasting my time being here. Get the hell out of here. Person goes home. The bone heals fine. There's no downstream damage. There'll be no lawsuit. Let's take the second doctor who does an excellent job of resuscitating a septic infant, really does everything right. But the baby ends up with lifetime disabilities. There will be a lawsuit. So, in my view, the, the rule of thumb is the bigger the damages, the less liability you need to the point of vanishing. If the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow is big enough, it doesn't matter what you did, you're still going to get sued.
1: I'm wondering how knowing that fits into mitigating the anxiety about losses? Is this like stoicism? There's only certain things you can control and those are the things that you worry about. And then even if you do a good job and there's a bad outcome, you could still
0: be sued. Where's the comfort in that? I think the comfort is that if you're getting sued because you did a great job, but the outcome was bad, the comfort is I did a good job. In other words, if you think that lawsuit isn't uh, a medical malpractice lawsuit is actually a measure of your competence as a doctor, you're going to feel bad. If you recognize that it has very little to do with your behavior and everything to do with the, the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, it can make you feel this is just part of our legal system in the United States. I'm going to get caught up in it a few times in my life. And that's just part of the system, part of the way it works. Talking about the way that it works in the systems, one of the
1: big things that happens in a lawsuit is a deposition. And I want to talk about what happens in a deposition. And as we were preparing for this, and I I was looking at some of your notes, you said, think of a deposition as an audition. I've never heard it phrased that way. So what is a deposition and why is it an audition rather than what it appears to be like on the surface?
0: This is is a great subject and I'm glad glad you brought it up. So technically what it is is that The the plaintiff and the defense lawyer, the plaintiff's lawyer is going to depose you and they want to have you come in and tell them what happened and show that what you did was wrong. This is like in a conference room. This is not in court. Not in court. No, this is pre-trial. This is part of discovery. So you're not going to talk the plaintiff's lawyer out of this lawsuit by, oh, geez, I didn't realize that TPA could be given in this case. Never mind. All right, I'm dropping the case. We can all go home. That's never going to happen.
1: I did hear of that happening once when a lawyer came into an emergency department and looked at a an x-ray board to see this and then started talking about the case. And then the doc, who's a super savvy guy, said, oh, so you're now a material witness in this case. Shall we call you as a witness? And then immediately <laughs> the lawsuit was
0: dropped. But back to the deposition. So I think doctors go to these depositions thinking they, they're they there to explain what they did. And to some to some extent, that's true. But what they're really there for is for the plaintiff's lawyer to see how you're going to look at trial when he puts you on the stand or when, uh, when you're on the stand. So if you look calm, thoughtful, compassionate, sensible, you can explain yourself and you, you're articulate when you do it and you're not defensive and you're not arrogant, they're going to think twice about whether this case should go forward. So what they really want to see at your deposition is your how you're going to come across to a jury. That's what they want to see. They want to see whether you're a person that will, the jury will say, geez, what a nice, thoughtful, compassionate doctor. I'm not going to find against this guy. He's. I don't have any idea whether he should have given TPA or not, but he's a thoughtful, compassionate person trying to do his best. I'm not going to find against him. So when I refer to depositions as auditions, that's really what's going on. They want to see how you look how you come across, whether they can get you to be rattled with cross-examination. What about this? Didn't you forgot to do this and you did? And if you get defensive and if you get rattled, they like that because then they can make you look defensive and uncertain and irritable and so on the stand. So I think most importantly, it's an ambition of temperament and of how you appear.
1: When you are on the defense, it sounds like your job is to be calm, thoughtful, and almost like you would be speaking to a child.
0: I know you're having a tantrum right there, but I'm just going to calmly explain this to you. But bear in mind that lawyers and often plaintiff lawyers are incredibly charismatic, thoughtful, funny, and they can get you to think that they're your friend. And in fact, if you weren't in this deposition setting, you'd probably enjoy having dinner with them. They're funny and they're interesting and they're smart and they're articulate because that's how they work like i i would watch
1: my dad i would went to court with him a lot when i was a kid and he and the other attorney i thought they hated each other i thought really and then after the case was done we'd all go out to lunch together and they were the best of friends they're used to that you are not you take things at face value but th- this for them is a method
0: yes i think that's an excellent point so they can be very charming in your deposition and you think this is a reasonable guy if i explained to him what happened then he'll get what I was doing and he'll be more forgiving. But in fact, what they really want to see is how you handle yourself, how you come across. And I think importantly, so does your defense lawyer. Because you're new to the defense lawyer. They want to see whether they're going to get killed if they put you on the stand at trial. And if you act like a jerk in the deposition, they're going to start lobbying you to settle the case. I would totally need a beta blocker or two. (laughs) (laughs) That's (laughs) a job, my God. Oh my God, I'd just be sweating through seven shirts. Yeah, um, I always recommend that people take a couple of Quaaludes before they... You work. do not. L- listeners, that's a joke. <laughs>
1: um, I want to take all of this into account. We've described the challenges here, and I want to land this plane by reducing risk and reducing anxiety. So looking at the big picture, what do you think are the best ways to reduce risk, your
0: risk of medical legal exposure? So I think that's real straightforward. And the good news is it has nothing to do with the medical malpractice system. So if you want to reduce the chance that you make a mistake and get sued for it, be a good doctor, be up to date on your medicine, go to your conferences, keep up on your reading. If you're a good doctor, that's going to reduce your chance of getting uh, drawn into the system as much as anything. Secondly, be a good person. There was a wonderful uh, couple studies, Wendy Levinson and and Nalini Ambati both did studies where they took surgeons that had been sued a lot and surgeons that hadn't been sued. And they recorded them talking to patients and then they changed the recording so that you couldn't understand the language. All you could understand is the tone. And then they played these recordings to third parties and they always figured out which the surgeons are getting sued were because they could tell in their tone of voice. They were condescending and the patients hated their guts. So if the patient really likes you and thinks that you're trying to do the best thing for them, their chance of suing you is much, much less. So treat them with care, treat them with competence. And the third thing I would say that I think everybody does anyway, but I think is useful is follow up. If the price tag is what's going to get you into court. One of the ways to keep the price tag lower is to make sure you keep track of what happened afterwards, right? So our visit, as I'm fond of saying to the patients, and I'll say this to them, this is a photo. What's happening to you is a movie. I'm just looking at this one photo from your movie. I want to know what's happening in 12 hours. Are you better? If you're better, I'm encouraged. If you're worse, I'm worried. So I need to know what's happening in 12 hours. Callbacks. And now that they've got these Zoom callbacks, and you actually, I think, can charge for them. Callbacks are such a fabulous risk management avenue. A, the patients are always flabbergasted that you call them back. And B, you get information. Often they say everything's better, I'm feeling better, but sometimes they say that my pain's getting a little worse. You say, Come back in. I need to see you again. Follow up, I think, is really important. And of course, when you think about it, admitting somebody to the hospital is the ultimate follow-up. It's not necessarily the best thing for the patient. But the reason we admit people is because they have constant follow-up. It's easy when you've got a
1: shift the next day. Doing it from home is a little different. I would always star 6 9 my phone so that my idea would be blocked, but then people wouldn't necessarily answer. But then if I didn't do that, then I would be getting texts and calls from that patient for months on my personal phone. I don't know, it's, it's a very unusual nuance, but yeah, how do you go about or how do you go about patient
0: follow-up, phone follow-up. I, I used to do it at the hospital. And, and what you said, I think, is exactly right. Let's suppose you see 20 patients in a shift. You admit five of them. Ten of them you sent home you're not worried about. That leaves you five that you're wondering what happened. And you call them back. You call them from the hospital. That's not a problem. I haven't solved the problem of how you do it from home. Although I'm wondering whether these, I, and you could probably answer this better than I, can you Zoom from home and not get uh, tagged with pestering? Sure. Yeah. You just make your own Zoom room. The other thing that's surprising about callbacks, and if you've done them, you know this, you'd think that they're going to talk your head off, but they don't. They're very respectful, generally speaking, of your time. Sometimes
1: there's a rare one that you do
0: get. (laughs) Of (laughs) course. Yeah.
1: yeah, And it's usually very useful information. Nine times out of 10, I'm doing great. Thanks for calling. And sometimes not doing so well.
0: One of the things that I want to get to at some point is documentation because I think- let's do it. Let's get there now. I think that's uh, super important. If you went into a room and said, what's your age, name, and where do you grow up? And walked out of the room and somebody said, worried or not worried, you'd be right 90% of the time. And your chart would be completely empty. There's all this precognitive, intuitive information that's exchanged when we see patients that because it's precognitive, it cannot be put into language. What would you guess the amount of information that you get for when you see a patient? It can't be put into words. Fifty percent, twenty percent, eighty percent—pick a number. Those all sound good. <laughs> so, yeah, what that has to mean is that fifty percent—if we're choosing that number—fifty percent of the information you got when you went in the room cannot be in the chart because it can't be put into language. So, your chart cannot contain. The real content of the visit. And lawyers love to try the chart, but the chart, it's like, it would be like giving the lawyer here, take out one page of the chart, a half the chart, and give them the remaining page and say, okay, let's go to trial. I can't tell you about the other page because it's hidden from you. It's not in the chart. Anytime you're sitting in front of a computer for the plaintiff's lawyer, you're wh- you're hurting the patient because they'd rather have you at the bedside than sitting in front of the computer to protect yourself from a potential lawsuit. And secondly, nowhere in the chart can you capture what happened when you walked in the room, your own intuitive process. And the reason you can't capture it's because it's precognitive. So I don't care how detailed the chart is, it cannot capture the essential quality of the visit. Where does that then leave you? A chart can't capture that.
1: But how does knowing that you can't capture that help you
0: down the road, help you if this goes to court? I think educating the jury, the plaintiff's lawyer, your lawyer, your carrier about the fact that we a lot of the information that we derive in our business with patients is intuitive. And it's not just patients. If you and and your wife go out to to dinner with another couple, and at the end of the evening, you and your wife go home and say, something was wrong. There's something wrong in that relationship. These guys, I think they're not getting along with each other. Now, nobody said a word about it in the course of the dinner, but how did you know that? And aren't you often right when, you're, when your intuition tells you that? That's an element of intuitive communication that everybody understands. I think jurors understand that they sense things that are important. And so part of the process, once you get caught up in, in, into the system, is educating everyone involved about the intuitive nature of what happens the other thing that i think is valuable and i'm going to there's a fabulous article that uh weirs and Nemeth did weirs down in florida he's a fabulous thinker and writer in emergency medicine but he wrote an article on hindsight bias in emergency medicine and it's valuable for two reasons one it's extremely articulate and thoughtful and number two it's extremely short it's easy to read, but if anybody, it was 2008 Hindsight Bias by Weirs and Nemeth. But he says, and I'm going to quote this reviewers who know the outcome of a case glibly judge cues to the correct diagnosis as being much more evident than they actually were. And they routinely overestimate the probability of the observed outcome. Whenever a case is in review, we all have hindsight bias. And, I, and, and all of us means us. So once you get tagged, And they say, oh, you're getting sued. Go look at your chart. And now you go look at the chart. You're looking at it with hindsight bias. Oh, I didn't think of that. Or, oh, I should have done that. Or, oh, I wish I'd done this. Oh, my
1: gosh, that tachycardia of 101 was the smoking gun out of this whole thing. I thought it was nothing.
0: So hindsight bias not only applies to the people from the outside, like plaintiffs, lawyers, and jurors who are evaluating your case, it applies to you. And it applies to your plaintiff's lawyer your defense lawyer, the fact that you're in there seeing him means that you've been tagged and means that he now has hindsight bias that something went wrong. We, it's, it's, it's pervasive and it's important that people, that you try and educate people that hindsight bias has to change the way they view the occurrence. So if you're
1: being questioned about this or examined about this, it's, boy, didn't you think that heart rate of 101 indicated that this person was going to die the next day of a pulmonary embolism? At the time, given all of the things that was going on with this person, it actually didn't seem important. Now, looking back on it, it's, oh, maybe that did indicate it. But at the moment, you know, taking in what was going on with all, you know the abdominal pain and the headache and the itchy tongue and this, is, that was just lost in the noise. And so, no, it didn't indicate it so clearly now to me that we know the outcome.
0: I think that's right, and that was that was articulate. The reality is, if you went back without that knowledge of the outcome and saw the patient again, you'd do the same thing. Right. That's right. Although you'd maybe be a little more nervous, but you would do the same thing. Although, I'm not sure
1: what kind of bias this is, but it's your your management of this presentation is based on your last bad case. 100%. To jump
0: ahead a little bit, there is another point that I think is important to stress, and that is nobody in the legal system wants to go to trial. Everyone hates trial. The plaintiff lawyers hate trials, the huh, defense interesting. Lawyers hate trial, the judges hate trial. Everyone hates trials. It's incredibly stressful. Trials are stressful. Everyone hates them. The reason I say that is that is to handcuff. If the depos- you've gone to a deposition and now they say, oh, we gotta go to trial. Okay, let's put twelve in the box. I like that. Bring it on. Let's have the trial. The more you make it look like you're gonna go to trial and that you're not gonna buckle, the more they start waffling and, and trying to negotiate a way out of it. So I, I encourage people not to be afraid of trial and to hang handcuff and see if your persistence will start to work on that plaintiff's attorney in terms of trying to come up with a settlement.
1: We've covered a lot of ground, why the process is so onerous, the capricious nature of it, some very simple things on how to reduce risk but as far as the big picture on allaying some of the things, I don't think you can completely get rid of it because it just is. It just is what it is. It's it's in the U.S. right now. It's the cost of doing business that there is an increased medical legal risk compared to other countries. But what would you say is the take home? Just the thing that people can carry with them to maybe not have this weigh as heavily on them as it did before.
0: I think the most important point is that the risk that we worry about is much smaller than we think. You know, if if you're going to get, you know you're going to get sued, most of the time it's going to go away before you have to do anything. A few times you may have to give a deposition or an audition. And extraordinarily rarely are you going to go to trial. It's not worth worrying about. Take care of the patient. All of your risk management has to do with being a good doctor. Nothing to do with lawyers and handling the legal system. I know I wanted
1: to conclude right there, but there's all these courses, right? Like these medical legal courses and these medical legal educations that I think stoke anxiety. And some of it goes a little bit of the opposite of what you're saying. What do you think about that lane of education and how it impacts thinking?
0: I think it's unfortunate. I I think that those courses are designed to scare you. And in fact, even the titles of the courses are designed to scare you. How to avoid the big Kahuna lawsuit. They prey upon our instinct to be afraid of the medical malpractice system. We don't get to have hindsight. We have to deal with what we see at the moment and everybody's so much smarter with hindsight and they see what could have been done differently. And I think that's an unfortunate, that's one of the problems with peer review is that we look in hindsight, oh, if you just got an AB, all that comes out of peer review is more testing and more admissions. It might be the case if peer review was done differently, that we could actually learn something about the medicine. That is in peer review, we find out that certain ways of approaching medical problems could be improved upon. But I'm very suspicious of hindsight as a way to judge what we did with foresight.
1: I did case reviews for a very short window of my life. And the best experience that I had was when a defense attorney, sent me a case and she said, I'm not going to tell you the diagnosis. I'm not going to give you any chart that leads to it. And I want you to tell me what you think of the care and the conclusion that this doctor made. And I thought that is brilliant. And I remember looking at the case and I said, it seems logical, but if the patient ends up having X diagnosis, there's no way you can defend it. And the patient ended up having X diagnosis and it was, but I was like, oh, that's great. Cause now I'm in the mind of the ED doc. And I think, all right, what's happening now? How would I approach this now rather than, oh, man, they had this horrible disease and you were totally missing
0: it. But you don't think the fact that you were handed a unbiased set of facts has already told you something happened? I
1: that know, there was a, happen. you're so right. There was a bad outcome. That's so
0: true. I didn't even realize my own bias trying to get rid of bias. I, there's a, a quote that somebody that I really liked, which was emergency medicine, is the art of making life and death decisions in the face of great uncertainty. That's what we do. We make potentially life and death decisions in uncertainty. Medical malpractice is the art of making life and death decisions with the benefit of hindsight. It's a completely different world. Take homes, keep up to, try and be a good doctor and keep up gate, be a nice doctor. Boy, I can't tell you how much how important that is, and there's so many things that people do. I loved it when you had Roush on here introducing yourself to everybody in the room, sitting down. All the studies that have looked at, if you come into the room and stand for two minutes or you come in a room and sit for two minutes, they always think you were there longer if you sat. Being a nice person when you see patients and compassionate and thoughtful and sometimes humorous probably does more to decrease your malpractice than all the other things you can think of to do. Limiting the damage, the price tag, is probably best done with good follow-up. Mark Brown, thank you so much, it's been great. Thank you, Rob.
1: And that is it for today. And you know what, if you love medicine, but you find the job itself leaves a lot to be desired, I work with docs in your shoes who feel the same way and help them extend their careers and have fun doing it. Can you imagine driving to your next shift with a feeling of stoke and excitement. And then when you leave for the day, you think to yourself, hey, that was pretty damn great. We can help get you there. And you can reach out to me at roborman.com. Until the next time, my friends, be well and keep on rocking.